Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As I said, we're spending a few months this fall considering this book. And I'll just acknowledge before I read our passage, it's not an easy book. It is one that's hard. It is one that is even sometimes painful and confusing. But we come to this book trusting that God's words are here and trusting that God is a good shepherd. And he uses his word even when it is painful uh, to lead us to life. And so we come to this book of confidence. We come with hope. Uh, we come with open minds and with open hearts uh, to receive what is even sometimes a difficult and sometimes offensive message. So would you join me now with open hearts, with open ears and minds in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter for us. This is the word of God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to, re- to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart... God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. 
Father, we come once again desperate. We come knowing that this is a gift uh, from you, but also knowing that it is a strange gift. It can be a difficult gift. And so we ask for your help. Would you help us to know how this speaks into our lives now? Would you give us understanding and clarity? And by the power of your Spirit, would you change us? Give us minds that understand, eyes that can see, and ears that can hear. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. When my family and I moved to Malawi, Africa... One of my first experiences was to go to a concert. And this concert was a hip-hop concert, and so I was already out of my comfort zone. <laughs> but it was to get even worse, because I did what my daddy taught me to do. I left for this event with enough time to find it and be there five minutes early. And so my friend and I left, and we found the place where the concert was to be, and we arrived five minutes early before the concert was supposed to start. And nobody was there. Completely empty building. No one was there. And so we waited. Five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, forty-five minutes later, people started to trickle in. And well after an hour, the concert finally started. That is a common experience when you go into another culture. To find that people of other cultures conceive of time differently than you do. How time should be measured. How time should be spent. We tend to look at time through a machine. That machine back on the wall there that keeps me from going too far past noon. Or on our wrists or on our phones. There are many people around the world that don't look at time that way. Don't treat time that way. And even in this room, even those of us who share a common culture, if we were to start to talk about our time and how we should spend our time, we would find a lot of different opinions. Should we spend hours on Saturdays in the fall watching 20-year-olds running around a grass field with an oblong piece of lead? <laughs> All right? Different ways of looking at time, how it should be measured, how it should be used. The teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, wades into this age-old discussion. And he begins his lecture with a poem. And it is poetry, we find this in verse 1 to 8, it is poetry that has both rhythm and contrast. And so notice there's the repetition of the phrase, a time to, a time to, a time to, a time to. And this rhythm, this poetic rhythm, communicates something about time. It shows us that time moves, it marches, it flows, and we cannot stop it. But within this flow, there is contrast. And so all these pairs in verses 1 to 8, birth, death, weeping, rejoicing, planting, harvesting, 
So within this flow of time, the teacher shows us that there is a variety of experiences. There is a variety of events that we experience living in the flow of time. And the point of this is not to give us options. This poetry does not say to us, here's the flow of time, and you get to choose it, and you get to choose what you experience. These aren't experiences that you choose. They are experiences that happen to you. In other words, this is poetry, not that you write. It is poetry that, you, that happens to you, that you experience. You are in it whether you like it or not. You live in this flow of time. You experience this dizzying array of events, whether you want to or not. But the teacher doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with poetry. He goes on and he extends his teaching. And in doing this, he he wants to show us not only the way it is, this flow of time, this rhythm of time with the variety of experiences. He wants to show us not only the way that it is, but how to live in the way that it is. So he not only wants to inform us and say, this is time. It marches on. You live and you die and you don't get to control what happens to you. He goes on to train us, to teach us how to live in that reality. And so I want to consider his teaching in response to this reflection on time. And what we'll see as we do that is we'll see that the teacher wants us to live trusting that time has both design and purpose. First of all, design. After giving us this poetry about time, the teacher doesn't respond to this reflection with despair or apathy. The fact that time flows on and all of this stuff happens to you, he doesn't respond with despair or apathy. His reflection leads him and it should lead us to God. So verse 10 He says, look at what God has given man to do. Verse 11, God has made everything beautiful. God has put eternity into the hearts of man. And so on throughout this chapter, there is a focus on the actions of God. And the reason he does that is he wants to say all of these events This flow, this march and rhythm of time, it fits. It all fits into a design, into a plan made by God. So the events of our life come to us as puzzle pieces with jagged edges and partial images. And the teacher says to us, They fit. They belong to a plan. They belong to a design that God has made. Yes, the events of your life are puzzle pieces, but there's a puzzle box with a larger picture (coughs) that God has made, that God has designed. But he doesn't stop there. 
It's kind of a nice message. But he never wants to leave us comfortable. And so he states that truth that our lives belong to the design, the plan of God, but then he draws out the implication that if God is the designer, if he's the planner, you're not. So verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put in us the sense, the knowledge, that there is a larger picture. There is a puzzle box. But he has limited our capacity to know and control that larger picture. He is the planner, and we are not. This teaching continues in 14 and 15, and it is also the point of this offensive message that begins in verse 18 where the teacher compares us to animals. And he says, you are no better than beasts. He's being intentionally offensive because he wants to teach us something. He says, think about it. What do you share in common with the animals? You die, and you don't know what happens to you you after you die. And he's not contradicting the rest of Scripture's teaching about the life after death. But he is reminding us of how little we know about that. And he says, in that way, you are like animals. And the goal of saying that is to humble us before the designer. He is humbling us. He is reminding us of the limits of our knowledge and the limits of our control. Yes, there is a design, but you don't get to make it. And you don't get to change it. And you don't get to control it. You have to entrust it to God. You have to entrust all of these puzzle pieces to the puzzle maker. And, he tells us, when you do that, then you can live with joy. He repeats the message that we heard last week. He repeats it twice in this chapter. He says, what do you do? Your life is puzzle pieces. There is a design. You don't know it or control it. So what do you do? Then you enjoy the good that is in front of you. And you do the good that is in front of you. If you can entrust the design to God, then you have the freedom to do what is in front of you, to take the moment that you are in and enjoy what is good and accomplish what is good. My older brother, his name is Tim, is quite a precocious child. I was the compliant one. He was not. Um, and my parents had very strict rules about television uh, for us. And the rules kind of went like this. They had two parts. They had, first of all, you can watch television on Saturday morning when your chores are done. So we both had assignments to accomplish around the house. So when you did those, then you can watch television. But then there was a second rule. You can only watch television after 10 in the morning, and you can only watch it for 30 minutes. So my brother, one Saturday, woke up very, very early, and he finished his chores with blazing speed. 
And he's done at like 8 in the morning. And he's ready to watch his 30 minutes of cartoon. But it's 8, it's not 10. And he waits as long as he can and he can't take it anymore. And so he went around the house and with every clock in the house that he could reach, and he was a competent climber, he took the arms and he changed the time from 8 to 10. And then he ran into my parents' bedroom and said, look, look, it's time, I can watch cartoons now. (laughs) My parents were clever enough and knew him well enough that it didn't work. (laughs) We live life like that. We live life trying to escape the restrictions of now. Whether it is replaying the past or fretting and planning for the future, we live trying to escape this moment, what God has given us now. And when we do that, we end with frustration. We're back to our old friend Hevel, missed vanity. When we try to escape the restrictions of this moment and live in the past or in the future, we grab air. We are trying to shepherd, to lead wind. And it will end in frustration. And not only frustration, but our lives will be ruled by denial, by guilt, by anxiety, or by arrogance. If we try to live controlling the past or the future, And the teacher wants to give us freedom. He wants to say there is a design, but you're not the designer. Entrust that to God. And that's not only his message, it is a consistent message in the Bible. In the New Testament, the book of James, chapter 4, one of the early Christian leaders, James, is writing to Christians And he talks in that chapter about people who are confidently planning for the future. They're being very responsible to make plans for the future. And they say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. That's our plan for tomorrow. And he rebukes them. And he does Ecclesiastes. He says, your life is missed. Don't say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. He says, say, God willing... We are going to do this and we're going to do that. Now, he's not there giving us a magic formula, okay? To say, if I say God willing, then it's going to go the way I want it to. Or if I don't forget to say God willing, then it's not going to happen the way that I want it to. It's not a formula. He is training us. He is teaching us. He's doing the same thing that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is doing. He is humbling us before the designer. He is humbling us before the planet. And he goes on to say, boast in him, don't boast in your own power. Figure out what is good to do now and do it in obedience to him. Because he is the one who controls the puzzle box. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't make plans for the future. It means that our security doesn't rest in those plans. So, a searching question for you. What happens when your plans don't happen? What happens when your plans 
don't happen, when they are changed, when they are ruined, what is your response? Anger? Anxiety? Our response to that experience reveals our heart. It reveals what or who we trust. When our plans get messed with, it reveals our worship. It reveals our faith. Do you live your life in the past and in the future? Or do you know the freedom of being able to live in this moment and to enjoy what is good and do what is good? You will do that. You will have the freedom to do that when you entrust the design to God. But why would we trust God that way? I mean, we can look at our lives, we can look at our world, and there are so many puzzle pieces that don't seem like they fit. Right? So many events, so many experiences that seem random. And more than that, that are painful and tragic. How can those fit into a design? How can we trust God as a designer when we know this pain and this tragedy in our own lives and in the world around us. We have to see that time has not only a design, but a purpose. The teacher doesn't ignore the problem with his view of time. He takes it head on. Verse 16, look there again with me. He knows the objection that we have to what he is saying. So he says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice... Even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it doesn't fit. There should be justice, but there isn't. You see, he's not teaching us some sort of dispassionate, zen-like view of our lives and of time. All due respect to Pete Seeger, who wrote the song and the birds who sang it. The point, they sang, uh, I'm, there's a lot of young people in this room, so uh, <laughs> there's a really old song that's based on the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, and it kind of communicates this, hey, time happens, it's just okay. No, that's not what the teacher is saying. He is saying it should bother you. You should be frustrated that justice is out of place, that it doesn't seem like the events of our lives and our world fit within a good design. But it should bother you, but being bothered should lead us to God. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. What's he saying? Time not only has a design, but it has a purpose. It is going somewhere. It is a flow. It is a rhythm that has direction. So the teacher says to us, time is not only a flow that has a variety of experiences. He adds the hope that God will intrude on that movement of time. And he will begin to take what is wrong and he will make it right. 
That God stands outside of time, but He will enter it, and He will change it. In the ancient Greek language and thought, there are two ways to talk about time, based on two words. The first word is chronos. And that word refers uh, to an idea that's very much like what we see at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It refers to the flow, the march, the rhythm of time that happens, that moves forward, whether we like it or not. But there's another word to talk about time in Greek, and it's with the word kairos. And this word refers to a unique moment. A unique moment that occurs and changes everything. This is like what the teacher is saying in verse 17. In this poem he says there is chronos, there's this march of time, but in verse 17 he says there will be a kairos, there will be a moment that will change everything. And so in the New Testament, when the writers of the New Testament are writing in the Greek language and they want to talk about Jesus, they use kairos, not chronos. And so Paul in Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, in the fullness of kairos, Jesus was born. Jesus uses it of himself in Mark 1.15. He says, I'm here, the time, the kairos, the moment when God begins to change everything, it has arrived. It has been fulfilled. Jesus is God's kairos. He is the moment in which God intrudes upon the march of time and begins to take what is wrong and make it right. He begins that work in his life, his death, his resurrection. He continues it now through his Holy Spirit and he will return and finish it one day when he comes and makes everything new. In Jesus, God intrudes upon the flow of history with all of its variety of events. And he begins to take what is wrong and make it right. And for this reason, we can trust God as the designer. Because in Jesus, he reveals himself to not only be in control, but to be good, to be faithful to his promise, to be faithful to the purpose of renewing the world in righteousness and justice. And God is so committed to that purpose, He took on skin and bone, and He bore the weight of evil and injustice and sin, so that He could overcome it with His resurrection and begin to fill the world with new life. <clears throat> there are several popular television shows that are nearing their end. They're coming to the series finale. And in making those shows, in filming those shows, uh, there are two different groups of people. And you can hear this as the press interviews the people involved in these shows. There are two groups. There's a group that knows the end, and then there's, there's a group that doesn't. And usually the group that knows the end, it's the showrunners. It's the writers. They have the story mapped out. And the group that doesn't know the end, it's the actors. 
They get a few pages of script at a time, and they have to go do the scene that they're supposed to do to move the story along. In the story of our lives, in the story of this world, we are not showrunners. We're actors. And we get a few pages of the script at a time. And we have to do the scene that is in front of us to enjoy what is good and do what is good. But the reason that we can do that is because in Jesus we know the showrunner. And he's a really good storyteller. And he is making something beautiful of time. He is making something beautiful of history. And in Jesus we know him and we belong to him. So the question for us isn't, do the pieces fit? And the question isn't even, is there a design? It's, can you trust the goodness of the designer? In the absence of details about the plan, can you trust the character of the planner? Those are the types of questions that Jesus wants to ask us. And so he says in Matthew chapter 5, don't be anxious about your life. Don't fret about tomorrow. And then he does Ecclesiastes. He says, you can worry about it, you can be anxious about it, you can fret about it, but will that add one hour to your life? No. It's mist. It's vapor. But then Jesus goes a step further. And he takes us not only to the limits of our ability to know and control the design, the plan, but he takes us to the character of the planner. And he says, don't be anxious about your life because look, look at the birds, look at the lilies, see how your father has provided for them, has clothed them in beauty. You see, Jesus reminds us, and he not only reminds us, he gives his life for this, that we belong to the showrunner. We belong to the storyteller. He is our father, and he cares for us so much more than he cares for the birds and the lilies. Can you trust not only that there is a design, but can you trust that because of Jesus, the designer is your father? And he has committed himself to taking the flow of time and bringing it to its end when everything will be made new. Time is poetry. And it's not poetry that we write. It's not poetry that we create. It is poetry that happens to us. But in Jesus we know the poet. He is good. And he is our Father. And he cares for us. And he loves us. And he brings us into the beauty that he is making of his world. Can you give yourself to the designer? Let's pray.